0: If you're going to win a bot race, you are promoting your bot. If you have a really good bot, you're going to win. And then you're going to be like, yo, click this link right here if you want my bot for your own repo. And now you created a business out of that. If you look at it long term, bots will eventually take a bigger piece of the pie. And then humans will take a bigger piece of the pie of what cannot be done via bots.
1: Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. Fastlane Labs, Trustless, MEV. MEV Protocol, maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to Mantis.app. That is M A N T I S. A P P. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Agachi from Scraping Bits and I'm with Gallo DeSpallo, AKA Alex the Entrepreneur. How's it going, friend?
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. I think we should do a quick little intro of who you are and what you do, just to give some context.
0: Yeah, I'm overemployed, so I worked as a security researcher, spearbit as a security researcher, also nice. as an independent researcher in a few contests, and I've also mm-hmm. been a judge at Coderina. My quote-unquote day job is a badger, both as a developer and as a security consultant. I also freelance on the side and random stuff related to Ethereum in general. Got you. And how did you get into all
1: this stuff? Were you in Web 2 before or did you just kind of like dive straight into Web 3? Yeah,
0: I think I'm one of the the suckers that got suckered into joining the space and the bull market. But I, <laughs> I would like to say that I joined earlier. Basically, I used to do a thing called Code Mentor where you basically are paid by the minute to consult people in software uh, stuff. They basically call you on Zoom, they share their screen, and they pay you by the minute. It's an amazing job oh, wow. if you are a remote worker or you're like a digital yeah. nomad. So honestly, I, yeah, I feel yeah, like sure. it's not uh, shield enough. Yeah. Like if you're getting started in Ethereum development, that's a great way to get some tips. And then maybe you do some other jobs on the side. And that's really how I got started. I actually was I found Shane, the founder of Polymarket. And basically asked me to help him build his MVP. And so that's how I got into building front ends for smart contracts. After a year or so, I basically decided that I want to become a smart contract developer. And right at that time, Code Arena was also started. So I kind of started doing hackathons, got into security research, won some hackathons, I can talk about some of that stuff, but ultimately through winning the hackathons, I got uh, a bunch of offers and I took uh, an offer with Badger and that's how I ended up working with them for two years now. And at the same time, I kept Mm -hmm. my moonlighting job at Coderina. So that's kind of why I'm ethically overemployed because I ultimately uh, have always uh, moved at Coderina and then done security research on the side while having uh, a day job at Badger. Yeah. And you're at
1: C4, right? And you became a judge there as well, didn't you?
0: Yeah, basically, if you're not familiar with uh, Badger, we used to do yield farming strategies. And uh, that's what I was Mm -hmm. super interested in uh, when I got started with all of Ethereum. I just enjoy building kind of these closed loop systems where, you know, you deposit funds Mm -hmm. and then they go back and the number go up. Uh, Just it was cool. And when you do that type of stuff, though, you need to do a lot of security type uh, due diligence because ultimately, you know, you could deposit into some malicious contract or something and you're going to get wrecked. And mm-hmm. so you know you're always yeah, yeah. one step away from being wrecked, and so that's why I think we did with Badger, we did six different audits in a in a year, or six different contests in a year with Codarina, because oh wow, okay, that just made a lot of sense for us because before launching, you know, and having hackers review our code, we may as yeah. well have security <laughs> researchers do that, right?
1: Did you ever think about automating these farming strategies as well? Because that's personally something I tried to do at one point. I never got too deep into it, but I think it's definitely
0: possible. I mean, that for me has always been my goal. And uh, that's where Mm -hmm. kind of with Badger, we. we, I guess we saw it different ways with other uh, contributors at Badger. But my goal was to write a system that will scale to infinite amount of strategies and it will work automatically. So... That's where if you follow the space of DeFi, you know that there's a 4626 in terms of the vault standard, which I'm not a fan of. Ultimately, my main goal with the vault architecture was to make it so that you could, just by having the data on chain from the vault, you could spin up a front end that was fully decentralized. And so my main Mm -hmm. goal with all of that architecture was to make it so that you could actually have like a self-custodial system that was 100% you know you audit the contracts yourself the front end mm-hmm. is the, is automatically generated by the on-chain registry that is mm-hmm. using these vaults that are all systematically built to have the same type of interface same type of information so that the front end yep. could have been a completely decentralized one which is a massive challenge because uh one question i would ask you is how would you price something you know how would you price a shitcoin on a random uh, front end right
1: yeah Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That kind of got me thinking and that was almost two years ago now, maybe January, 2021. Okay. Where uh, we basically launched kind of this intermediary architecture called the volts 1.5, which were basically mm-hmm. work by, uh, by year and original work. That's what we call the Vaults one. And then yep. uh, 1.5 was kind of my contribution where like a neat trick we would use. We use the struct for a address and quantity so that if you just do a list of these tracks, you basically can return arbitrary values that can track uh, your rewards. And so Mm -hmm. by doing that, you can basically make this architecture scale to any front end or basically to track any type of token. Then the second neat trick we used was uh, using if call on the harvest, and we set it up in that way that we could simulate it as a way to predict the price impact that it will generate. Because Mm -hmm. if you have a view function that tells you the amount of rewards you got and then you check the if call return value on your vault, you basically can determine the slippage that your harvest is going to have. And so that was the way in which we kind of implemented monitoring system that was based on on on-chain data. Basically, again, fully trustless and just autonomous.
1: I love the fully decentralized, basically front ends. I think they're amazing and anybody can just kind of spin them up and not really worry about having infrastructure in the back just to get some data. I've always been like an advocate for that.
0: Yeah, on, the, on that end of the decentralized front end, I will say that there's ultimately going to be a massive issue because people don't like them. That's a the reality because they don't like the fact that you have to inject your RPC into the front end because otherwise if we use a shared RPC, we're gonna be tracking you. And so you just get these UX where people are just mad that they have to unlock MetaMask or something. My current idea, This is kind of the idea that I have is, what if we had a box in the center of every frontend that forced you to paste like an Alchemy key or something? And that was the only action you would have to do. Because if we all agreed on that, then what we will do is we will just write a Chrome extension where you pass your PC key, and it could be even to a local node, like just a local URL. And that way you will be able to have decentralized frontends that unlock automatically without having to yeah. unlock your metamask or something like that
1: yeah and i think if you're on ethereum specifically you could just use the flashbots rpc like that's public and just just chuck that in there <laughs> she'll be right i think that alchemy is definitely a, a good way of doing it you're not risking your wallet in any way or and you're just using a public rpc basically so it is yeah fully decentralized but you did mention when you're in a badger DAO, you you did a lot of c4 basically orders right and even on twitter you've You've asked people to send you uh <laughs> their reports to you so they can get roasted.
0: <laughs> what did you learn from these reports? Yeah, and that that's really my, well that was kind of my master plan. It's like <laughs> something that I've learned is you can basically if you're honest enough and you have enough uh, you spend enough time, you'll find jobs that pay you to learn. And so that was yeah. my experience at Coderina. I basically, after being a sponsor, basically after convincing Badger to do these audits, because we, Mm -hmm. you you know, what's the, our side was, let's keep the team small, let's just delegate the security, or at least, you know, the piece before launching, let's delegate that to somebody else instead of having, you know, six people full-time or something like that. But basically I was invited to become a judge at Codorino, and I just Mm -hmm. took the opportunity, and I would uh, you know, moonlight, you know, daylight work on Badger, and then I would moonlight doing those type of contests. Just as a, a kind of a strategy, my Strategy there was. I mean, my goal was to learn, and that's why I did it. And then my yeah. strategy was to be fair to to most uh, wardens, and that's what I think uh, most wardens are grateful for for me is that, that I like I'll write like a comment or I'll give them some advice. I remember linking, you know, the CS fifty ma- uh, class about uh, Boolean algebra because some people just keep sending, mm-hmm. you know, the wrong finding when uh, you swap from requires to if you have to do the opposite, and so people get confused. Mm-hmm. And so basically um i just uh I think everybody was happy with my work and so I just kept uh, getting uh, this type of gigs and yeah. uh um I will say it kind of evolved uh, when the open C contest happened uh oh yeah. I think there okay. were a group of uh, judges that were uh, very respected uh, uh, and there's they still are they're great people there's they're all lead security researchers now uh mm-hmm. but basically what happened was there was some controversy around uh, uh, not awarding uh, some of the uh, bottom uh, uh, scoring uh, uh, quality assurance reports. And mm-hmm. uh, basically they, they basically asked me to intervene and just give my thoughts, kind of be like, I think yeah. they called it like the I don't remember it was like the executive judge, something like that. And, okay. uh, uh, but basically I wrote kind of this system to, to score QAs and uh, basically give them like a quantitative uh, uh, measurement to score them. And mm-hmm. I basically told them which, one, which of these QA's reports should have been paid and which one shouldn't. And I think that convention mm-hmm. is still uh, ongoing and is still being used even today as we go into kind of a new era code arena with uh, bot races. I've had a pretty strong impact there in terms of getting people to just use these quantitative measures to make sure that everybody, like, because you will always make a mistake as a judge. But at least you can be fair in terms of judging the findings uh, in the same way for everybody. And that that was the goal uh, from my side.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And and what did you kind of constitute? Was a, a, a low risk and a
0: high risk, basically, exploit or vulnerability? You've been uh, kind of talking about the classification in terms of Coderina yeah, yeah, how exactly. it works. How did you uh, choose whether? it was? Yeah, I mean, and there's uh, there's another side, and that's why I would invite you or the listeners to try and participate as a Coderina warden, because like something that you want to keep in mind is that uh, there's only one customer in Coderina, and it's the sponsors. It's the people that actually mm-hmm. pay for the contests. So there's always going to be kind of this attrition between what is a high impact finding, Versus what is paid as such, or what is like a valuable finding versus what is paid a little. A, a great example is uh, something that uh, Spearbit has done: is they made uh, a finding about uh, vaults, uh, you know, for six to six vaults uh, uh, being frontrunnable and uh, causing like a loss to the first depositor. They basically made it uh, public because they taught that so much that any type of vault system will always get like a hundred times the same report. And so Mm -hmm. those type of reports, they end up being even high severity in terms of impact, but they end up being paid a very little. But that said, the the way you classify findings is actually fairly straightforward. If there's no loss or it's a loss that is basically caused by yourself, you are going to downgrade them to a QA or a low severity. If there's a loss, but it's a a not not particularly high loss, for example, a loss of yield for the vault example. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a marginal loss or it's a loss that is conditional on some sort of external condition, then you would call it a medium severity. And then if there is no need for an external condition, basically, if you can press the button, you can steal all the money, that's going to be a high severity because, you know, there's no, it's non-negotiable. People can just steal everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. And what would you sort of, how would you give advice to people coming into C4 and writing good reports, basically getting, you know, ranking higher?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's something that uh, I'm going to give you like a parallel. By the way, have you ever freelanced? Yeah. And like, did you do kind of those, uh, you know, Upwork type stuff where you send your uh, resume or something and then uh, people look at it and then you have to send some sort of application letter for like gigs? Is that something you've tried?
1: Oh, no. People usually just message me on, on Twitter. That's, about, that's basically how it
0: works. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that's actually called like pre-selection. It means that people know that you're good or they have an intuition that you're good. And so they're going to okay. just go for it. And so mm-hmm. that, that's really good. But when it comes to like more of these cold scenarios where people don't know you and you just have to have yep. your work talk for yourself. Now, mm-hmm. what the, the most effective setup that I found is that you're just going to be super honest and you're going to tell people what you're going to do. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to kind of use this as a parallel in terms of a security report. The way you write a security report is you want to write it in the way in which the other person is, wants to read it, right? So you, mm-hmm. you want it to, to be simple. You want yep. it to be to the point. You want it to have mm-hmm. specific keywords that are going to trigger either an emotional reaction or they're going to mm-hmm. trigger an understanding, right? When we talk about loss of yield, like mm-hmm. that's that, that means something more than just the words that I said. We already know yeah. what we mean, right? We, we mean mm-hmm. either a front running of Harvest, uh, a sandwich attack, some sort of MEV being leaked or the tokens being thrown away somewhere else. And so yep. you want to use those type of keywords. And uh, the best advice, though, that uh, parallels back to the freelancer is the best way to learn how to be a freelancer is to actually try and employ people because you're going to get all of these job applications where just, just people literally don't think about it and they just send you some crap. And once you see, you know, the flood of crap, you know, a hundred times people sending a resume and saying that they're the best and saying some gibberish stuff, that's when you're going to realize that everybody defaults to kind of this crappy presentation type uh, Yeah, low uh, effort. And so, exactly. And so, like, you want to just go above that. And uh, the best way will be to check some of the winning reports and really Mm -hmm. genuinely ask yourself, what are they doing? It's kind of like a shape. The shape is like a clear title, a short context, a step-by-step exploit, and then a coded POC. And once you have kind mm-hmm. of that shape in your head where you can recognize a good uh, report, then you want to try and write it. And obviously, it's a lot more difficult, but uh, but uh, you can improve uh, as you go uh, because now you understand kind of the criterias. And then you want to be mm-hmm. realistic that you know if you have one day to compete, maybe it's okay to send a crappy report uh, and just you know just go for it yeah. and just try try your luck. Uh, but at the same time, you mm-hmm. don't want to be dishonest about it. You want to know when you're kind of cutting corners and you want to definitely have a great idea, in your, at least in your head, uh, of what a, an amazing report looks like, which, you know, has those conditions and then should also be awarded. Because obviously you can write the most amazing report, but if you if you don't know, you know, if you're going to either overinflate the severity of a finding or you don't know what you're talking about, then, uh, you know, mm-hmm. chat GPT's reports look amazing from my experience they really do right. They look amazing. And then uh, you spend, uh, 10 minutes trying to understand it. And then you realize that the, that it's chachi, And that's when you just <laughs> ban the, the account and you, you're like, okay, you're done. You know, I'm done. I'm done engaging with this because you tricked me. Yeah. And uh, so that, wow. that's just something to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically, if you want to be a good C basically security researcher, then you've got to look at the, you've got to put yourself in the reporter's shoes and what they're looking for. And the way you can do that is by looking at past winning reports that are, you know, elite from the best that are constantly scoring in the top 10 or top five. And that's how you could kind of learn to become good at writing reports. And then obviously, you can find patterns and how they find, you know, the, the severity of bugs. And then if you're trying to become basically a judge, you've got to look at it from basically like a judge's shoes and okay, what are they looking for? And again, you go back to the, the best kind of reports and the ones that are unique and the people constantly scoring in the top and see what the patterns are and how they structure it as you said there's, there's, a, there's a clear structure and super simple concise and it gets the point across in a compact way so i i definitely think that that's some great advice yeah and and how do you let's go back into like the auditing side in c4 so being a security researcher what are yeah. how do you kind of like visualize state machines and w-
0: when you're auditing oh uh, okay so this this is like and I think I've uh, posed the question on Twitter fairly recently, because this is, m- okay. in my opinion, like a massively underexplored area. And it's mm-hmm. like, how do you actually visualize state machines? Because if we're talking about, you know, the basic security process, and I think uh, eventually yep. Spearbit will uh, pu- publish like a, a talk that I gave. And the, the three points of a basic security research are, you want to understand the code. So basically, can you, mm-hmm. can you explain me in one line how the contract works? And then the second part is, mm-hmm. did you read it line by line? Basically, did you find the u bugs? Just like unit tests, you have yeah. unit bugs. And then the third yeah. aspect is kind of the creativity aspect. Did you imagine mm-hmm. something going wrong and then worked backwards from it? And you found kind of uh, explore some of the crazier ideas. And that's basically the security mm-hmm. process. But when it comes to kind of zooming in, something that happens, especially as we work with more complicated systems, because like, You know, Mm -hmm. Uniswap V2 is a primitive, you would argue. It's uh, something that everybody kind of understands, right? And so Mm -hmm. people are no longer just building Uniswap V2 or like a X times Y plus K architecture. They're adding all of this extra stuff. And so Mm -hmm. from my experience, it's very hard to keep track of all of the possible states that are happening in the code and testing against them. And I feel like if we add some sort of a visual language, because I think, maybe I'm making this up, but I think they did uh, studies and most people are uh, visual. And then you have some people that are mostly, they think uh, through through sounds and then some people they they think through touch, they're kinesthetic or something. But like most people want to see things. And so if we found Mm -hmm. a way to clearly show how the state of a contract or like a, a specific state of a contract. And then we kind of ask our usual security questions, such as how do I break it? How do I steal something? How do I make, what are the conditions that will cause it to stop working? That would allow us to kind of have this checklist that from my perspective, we really don't have. Like you, let's say you're going to audit die. Like I'm just going to kind of do the the Socratic matter and ask you, like, let's say you're going to audit die. And so what kind of states would you be thinking about?
1: If I was to audit Die, I would basically look at, okay, what happens if I basically mint a bunch of tokens or send tokens to the contract or Ether to the contract? Well, what can I alter then? Or is there any kind of access control, any way to manipulate that? Or even, I guess, even oracles in a way of like what's keeping it. Yeah, and what if I told you, know, you that
0: you could donate, donate some tokens to DAI and that will break something? Like, what would what be your reaction well, obviously
1: you'll be concerned,
0: <laughs> right? And obviously I'm, I'm, um, I'm tricking you because there is no such check, but what if I told mm-hmm. you that if the caller, this is actually true. What if I told you that if the caller of die was the recipient of the token, and uh, in that case, the token is actually, does a no-op where it actually skips a bunch of checks. So what if I told you about mm-hmm. that? How would you be able to track that? Right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that has been my experience is that once the set of uh, contracts uh, becomes complex enough, it becomes very yeah. hard to talk about uh, different statuses. Um, and yeah. uh, I feel like we really need, like the idea of having a finite state machine that is just, you know, circles pointing to different circles, cut it from me. I feel like we need to take the work that is being done in a pyrometer, which I believe is a great example of trying to deal with the, infinite complexity of smart contracts because they do bound analysis yeah. and they kind of tell you how each variable is going to be bounded and what, what are the possible values. And you can look at it yeah. almost as a you know quantum mechanic type deal where it could be one thing or the other thing, but then I feel yeah. like we still have one layer of, there's one layer of thinking that we still have to do in order to interpret that data. Whereas if we had a mm-hmm. way to visualize it, I feel like it would allow us to really consider some of these more edge cases that tend yeah. to be uh, the source of all uh, bugs because from my experience mm-hmm. the code that has been uh, checked uh, you know a thousand times by a thousand people the, the code uh-huh. that everybody will check on their first 10 minutes of audit that code never has bugs the code with bugs is the one that wasn't checked because of assumption or it wasn't checked because mm-hmm. nobody got to it right because if a system is complex enough and you just send yeah a bunch of people all trying the kind of the same thing, they will all eventually stop kind of at the same level unless you give them a reason to continue. And so I feel like that's really Mm the kind of the heat map of the contract. And coverage doesn't solve it, by the way. Like the obvious answer is check test coverage. But the issue is that test coverage will show you the branches that are covered by the tests. Whereas what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. is kind of more of a intellectual coverage based on the states that you're thinking about. So it's like yeah. you perhaps tested the code in the happy flow, but did you test it when you have no balance in the case of die, Or did you test it when somebody else is trying to transfer? Or do you test it when somebody is actually calling to transfer to itself or something like that? I genuinely believe that in the future, as we build more sophisticated tools, this aspect of visualizing states is going to be a lot more important. We're going to have the words to actually talk about it, which I feel like we quite don't have yet.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think the tooling in the, in the space is quite limited right now and underdeveloped. I think what Brock is doing is a terrific task and a terrific tool that is quite amazing for the space. And I think it's underappreciated as well. I think bound analysis is a great assistant to basically get all the possibilities and what's kind of, okay, what's the range of this parameter and what's realistic judging by all the require statements and all if statements. I think that's a real help. And I think security researchers in general, they spend too much time trying to get an overall understanding of the context of the single contract, and they don't have enough time to think about what they do best, which is thinking of basically exploits, which can be external contracts, right? interacting with different functionalities which the developer wouldn't really think of. For example, like a flash loan sending, you know, a million tokens to the contract. What happens then? Or, you know, doing it from a
0: contract instead of an EOA, then what happens? I will take uh, a little bit of a contrarian perspective there where I feel like the metaphor that I see is almost like trying to control everything. But because Mm -hmm. this this type of contracts are so new in a way, we're not used to them. We really don't have the tools. And I feel like the main challenge that we have introduced through the EVM is the idea that you're thinking in values, right? Because, you know, variable, you assign the value, but the reality is that you have storage, which is a pointer to anything. And so we are basically developing exclusively memory unsafe programs by definition because we have this right. pointer to anywhere, which, uh, you know, it's kind of the argument for Rust where they're like, bro, why would you ever do something like that? But at the same time, it's kind of a feature because of the fact that you will want to be able to call a separate contract. And so I feel like yeah. this extra dimensionality makes it exponentially more difficult. And then the, yeah. the other end is almost like the in a way, the moral of the story is we want to let go of some control. Because I feel like like if I tried my best and I just spent all of my life trying to audit a contract, I will still <laughs> fall short because for whatever reason, maybe it's my the way I think, could be the way I behave. Whatever reason, there's a million of them. And so the idea that we have kind of we're at a crossroad where in this space, you can have an insane impact as a solo individual. You could do so mm-hmm. much, but at the same time, I feel like these type of areas, because we are so different as people, it actually really helps to get massively different uh, types of opinions. Because for some people, mm-hmm. the dumb exploit, they find it immediately and other people, they can only find kind of the, the weirder stuff and they have a hard time finding the more mundane stuff. And so I feel like that's where we're at, where it will be basically, it's like, yes, we can improve a lot, but at the same time, I feel like it's basically unacceptable to not have multiple eyes that scrutinize your work just because of the stakes and because it's so hard to actually have everything under control. I feel like there's so many variables that you could be dealing with, especially if you have even like three or five contracts that you're writing. You really don't want to be at a point where you're the only person that understands your code. You want to make sure that other people also understand it and have challenged it enough so that it's actually robust.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you can't get someone else to understand it, then it's probably not good code, right? At least that's what I think. It's kind of like teaching. If you can't explain something in a simple way and convey it to someone else, then you probably don't know it too well.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, one side of the discussion. And then the other side is I feel like, and I'll give you like a real example, like going back to mm-hmm. kind of the trustless vault uh, stuff. Something that I spent uh, basically six months of my life on was a contract to do a trust rewards distribution. So I mm-hmm. started by finding every exploit or every issue with the synthetic staking contract. Like if you okay. send me any of your staking contracts, I'll find a bunch of stuff that are all edge cases, though like nothing really noticeable. But basically, mm-hmm. In building something like that, you end up going from kind of a two-dimensional system where you just have time and resources, right? You earn rewards over time. But then if you make it general, now you have a third layer of complexity because now you have kind of a, I I did like a vault Mm -hmm. epoch reward type indexing. And I found that I basically couldn't talk to anybody about it because... If you actually didn't go through the exercise of trying to write something, I guess, in the third dimension in some way, it it does take some time to adjust to. And so that's the other side is that, I mean, you can write really, you can have insane impact in terms of stuff you can write alone. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, for other people to understand, it sometimes does take a lot of effort. And another example would be the balancer vault. I will challenge you to go and just write a deposit transaction for a balancer vault. And I'll talk to you maybe in a week. And I'd be surprised if, you know, if, if it didn't take some effort to, to really understand that in spite of the fact that the core architecture is really clean and really solid, mm-hmm. there's still all that getting used to all of these conventions and just the kind of the lack of tutorials, right? There's no mm-hmm. video tutorial on how to write that. As far as I know, there's not even a solid tutorial. You would have to figure that out by reading uh, literally just reading the, the enums that they have source. to define sure. the user data, and then you would basically... My best advice would be to do a deposit on MetaMask and just try and uh, reverse engineer the call data because that's probably the best place yeah, to yeah. start.
1: <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense. That's what I do as well. Yeah, I think doing reverse engineering on like a call data f- from MetaMask is, is actually uh, quite good because their front end does all the stuff for you and puts it in like correct terms. And you're already doing it in a visual way. So let's say like 1Eth, uh, you're doing like a deposit of one E, for example, the call data is one E. And, and then you can look at that, you're like, okay, that's what it looks like in the call data and you can go back into the call and contract and kind of just follow it down where that you know value was being used. And so I think that that's probably the, the best approach that I would do. and then just look at the source yeah. the source code basically.
0: Yeah, what I would say there is that, and I mean, and I would really invite you to to try that out just as a thought exercise to try, and to, like the thing I would challenge you to is to do it and explain it to somebody else because mm-hmm. I feel like we as developers, we can actually get into the nitty gritty and we are willing you know, to spend, I don't know, two hours on something to figure it out. I feel like the next win in general for uh, dApps in general is going to be the preview mode. Where you want to make sure that people can just, you know, press buttons and do whatever is going to happen. And then they can preview what's going to happen to make sure that they actually understand what they're about to do. Because I feel like uh, the, the cold data validation method really is not, people just are not willing to do it in general. Yeah, it just, it's super tedious. It requires too much effort.
1: It's It's not... You basically need to be like experienced in it as well, and then you have to. It's even for like an experienced person, it does take some time to do. So imagine just a normie like person trying to use your protocol. <laughs> They're not gonna know how to re- reverse cold data and be like, "Oh yeah, I remember this. Yeah.
0: I know what this does." <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is close to home. But basically, that's kind of the story. That from our perspective, the story is: bro, you opted into a self custodial system. You are welcome to the arena. You signed away your coins. You're an idiot. Try again. That's basically our perspective. It's not a good perspective, but whatever. That's kind of the objective perspective of what happened on a technical level. And then the experience of a normal person is, bro, I was promised that this thing is going to happen. And now I lost all of my money. How do you undo it? Who do I call to get it undone? Right? Because that's really the experience when uh, when it comes to that. And that's why I'm not a fan of uh, even making uh, the UIs too easy to use. Like I, I, really like mm-hmm. making UIs easy to use from a developer standpoint, from a pro- product standpoint. But when the stakes are so high, I feel like we should have like a developer-only playground where you know that the people that are actually doing the stuff they at least have some understanding because otherwise they will be deceived, uh, scammed, etc. I feel like the space is very good if you're a developer, but if you're not a yeah. developer, you should do nothing. You should just watch, just enjoy.
1: Yeah, it's it's really quite like a a little dark forest for the, just the normies trying to just interact with protocols because they they don't even think about the technical stuff like MEV that can happen as well. <laughs> sure, you can have a preview and it simulates it, but then they're not considering okay, can this be front ran or any any of that? Yeah. Like what- it's gonna happen. <laughs> if there's no, you know, specific checks for that stuff.
0: Yeah, that was something I wrote like a quick thread on that apparently if you retweet your own poll and then you write a thread, it actually produces reach, or maybe it was a shitty thread. But the point that I was trying to make is that going back to the decentralized front ends, if you're going to have a decentralized front end, you need to have a trustless pricer, which is basically mm-hmm. a contract that can determine a price of a token. And so mm. Uh, The way I tried to solve it and we tried to solve it at Badger was to basically hard-code every single possible source of liquidity that made sense. And if you go and do the math, Mm -hmm. 80% is on Uniswap and Curve, and then there's some balancer. And that's basically it. If you really crunch the numbers, that's basically the liquidity on Mainnet. And and Mm -hmm. then you would basically just write a optimization logic or whatever to figure out what the optimal price is. To yeah. write an optimal price on a single uh, segment as in finding the best place to, to do a single swap is actually not that expensive. I think we got it down to maybe less than 100k gas and maybe I'm wrong. I don't I don't quite remember. But that that's basically a whole can of worm because the idea of having to maintain something like that makes it so that like you, you will basically have to degrade the UX to the point where you go on a website, you have to put the RPC key, you have to choose your pricer and your pricer maybe has to be updated or something like that, and uh, mm-hmm. it is achievable But at the same time, it's so much more convenient to just look at CoinGecko or something like that to actually Mm -hmm. do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I love all like the automation stuff and the the decentralized stuff, but it it is like a UX kind of problem. And there's like multiple solutions for, I guess, your goals. But I also wanted to like switch topics and kind of go into about bot races on C4. Yeah. In in your experience, what, what do you think they miss and what do they solve?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Code Arena has many challenges. And if you look at any other competitor, you know, Sherlock, Hats. But if you look at them, they basically run into the same issue Mm -hmm. that eventually you have to deal with too many people. That's the reality. It's really as simple as that. There's too many people that are going to send the usual stuff and they're going to dilute the pot and their marginal contribution is zero. And that's a, you a know, very psychopathic thing to say, but that's the reality. It's like if they didn't participate, the sponsor wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. The other people that are competing, that are finding all the bugs will be happier because they get more money and the organization will uh, spend less money. And so it's mm-hmm. it's a difficult challenge in uh, balancing out inflow of new talent. Something that you want to keep in mind is that if any of the top wardens quit tomorrow, they will be replaced. Like you, you're like, oh, wow, the, the, there's like a hierarchy. No, bro, mm-hmm. there's literally people that are waiting at their ankle just to get their spot. That's the reality of this space because it's really that competitive. And so that's something to keep in mind. And then the other side of the, the discussion, though, is how do you keep it open to new newcomers? And so yeah. what happened over time is the Code Arena never wanted to get rid of the QA report. That's really what happened. They started mm-hmm. by saying that uh, you could send kind of informational findings, you know, such as events or gas optimization or stuff like, if you transfer too much value, then you lose it. Like this stuff where you basically make a user mistake, we would call them low severity or quality assurance findings, and that they never wanted to uh, deprecate that stuff. Whereas other places, such as Sherlock, they just make them out of scope and they don't pay them. C- Coderina always wanted to keep that open because they obviously see it as, as the gateway to get new people in the space. I'm just going to send mm-hmm. something, maybe I'll win 20 bucks, and that's going to be my small win, and I'm going to get started. And so... I think it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a really smart decision there, but what it causes, it causes the fact that everybody's sending the same thing without any originality. Mm-hmm. And so once you talk about you know repeating the same task that is monotonous, that is basically a pattern matching operation, that's when you want bots. And so that's really what they mm-hmm. did. They simply started saying, okay, we're going to have a bot race, a bunch of people that just write bots. They're going to send us our QA report And then anything they find, we make it out of scope. Which means that if you find a bug that could cause the entire protocol to go down, but if it was already reported by the bot, it's considered a known finding because you could have just written it from the report that is made public in the contest repo. So uh, as a way to get rid of all of these uh, uh, common submissions, because the idea at the end of the day, which was also confirmed by a guy called, I think he was a security researcher that wrote a paper about automating bots. And basically Mm -hmm. what he found is the unique diversifier, the the, the thing that actually makes you find bugs is you as a human being, because there is no Mm -hmm. formula to find all of the interesting bugs yet. And so bots are just getting rid Mm -hmm. of all of that stuff so that uh, people can focus on more of their unique strengths and in offering something that is actually valuable to the sponsors.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. But let's say that someone does create a sophisticated bot and then it is able to to basically find critical vulnerabilities, then you're getting rid of that kind of like association in the main pool. Are you not? Like let's say a bot finds something and then someone mm-hmm. finds something on top of that, but it's already out of scope then. So ha- I guess how does that work?
0: Yeah. Okay. Th- that's kind of the second level of bot races. And that's where uh, I feel like uh, there's only one other person that can speak about their frustration. Uh, we I call him the wall. It's basically uh, and on the with wall. like L-I-L-I-L-I, call it the wall. Okay. But basically the wall uh, is the only person that has written a bot that actually can find like mediums or high severities reliably. Like my advice to a person that is finding all that stuff is to not send it in the bot race as of now, but to just yep. send it in the main pot and really uh, use it to to gain an advantage there. There are other places. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you really hear what I'm saying already told you everything, but there are other places where being faster is actually the advantage because they are first in, first out in terms mm-hmm. of uh, awards. And so that's where I would yeah. use my bot for high and medium severities. I would just regex the hell out of that stuff and just send it there. And then for the bot race, yeah. I would look to win at the bot race. But then the last piece that I want to mention that people really don't get it is that Code Arena is the place like everybody acknowledges that if you're the best in Code Arena, you're among the best in the world right like is there is there any question there right there is no question like it's a fact because you have to be a grinder you have to be there you have to do it for a long time and you have to actually be good and smart and you have to constantly win and so if you're gonna win a bot race you are promoting your bot right we actually have ad bots that uh, they're like professional bots and they honestly got wrecked. What I'm trying to say, though, is like, if you yeah. have a really good bot, you're going to win. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to be like, yo, click this link right here if you want my bot for your own repo. And now you created a business out of that. And so yeah. people really don't, don't look at it uh, with that long term. But if you look at it long term, bots will eventually take mm-hmm. a bigger piece of the pie. And then humans will take a bigger piece of the pie of what cannot be done via bots.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with that uh, that point where if a bot does win, let's say in the bot race consistently, it, it's not about the money at that point. It's more about, okay, the publicity because C4 is a stage. It's probably the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest stage you can go on to basically uh display your skills. And it's been a common occurrence that people that rank, you know, top 10 or top 25 or even top 50, they just get picked up or poached because people want these people on their teams because they're publicly displaying that they're, they've got skills right on a stage yeah. and all these teams are basically just staring at this constantly. Okay. Who can we get next? Who's new? Who's just popped out from the, the woodworks now is, you know, one of the top in the space. So it's really a big stage.
0: Yeah. I will say this, uh, this goes deeper. Like, uh, um, if you ever done hiring for companies for, you know, for teams or whatever, there's basically, there's a million ways in which you can go about it. But one of the most popular mm-hmm. ones is actually doing hackathons like telling anything uh, particularly weird, people do hackathons, they put a pot and then your winners, you just uh, poach them. You basically hire your winners. And uh, the yeah. same thing applies to Code Arena, where uh, if a security researcher can find a lot of bugs in your code, you will mm-hmm. probably engage with them again just because, uh, you know, it makes sense. It's just rational.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. They're obviously scoring high, so may as well just bring them on board as like a private order though. I think uh, Bytes
0: did that as well, if I if I get that correct, but... Yeah, one day I'll say that uh, all these people are gonna have to tip me, you know, because I'm making them look good. The joke that I gotta <laughs> make is like, you know, two years as a security researcher, never won a single contest. Ask me anything, right? But uh, mm-hmm. no, I think I think they did uh, a great job, and you can see that the people are really trying. I feel like uh, it takes me one contest to know if a person is gonna be a really good uh, auditor or not. Even though they may not have the chops, I feel like just the eagerness to contribute, the extra information, the detail just shows that you spent a lot more time. And I feel like people that actually are looking for great talent, they, they also pick up on this stuff. I'd be surprised. Mostly, it's only the people that don't, I guess, value more of the flashiness, they don't see it, but I guess there's room for, for, for everybody. So their loss mm-hmm. will will just get more more of this type of talent.
1: Yeah. And what do you kind of see within
0: the high talent pool? Like, what's a common occurrence that you see within these reports? Well, I wanted to say something uh, separate because I feel like something that has happened already is like the top researcher spinning up their own firm. That's not uh, rocket science, but that's also something that has happened multiple times. If you checked kind of the previous yeah. cycle, quote unquote, that was Watchbug. Watchbug is, my, in my opinion, some of the best independent researchers in the space and they basically were killing mm-hmm. it on Codarina, and now they do I don't think they compete anymore maybe they did one audit in this year because they have a bunch oh. of clients and they just offer you know individual uh, researchers the same thing uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know you can say about trust i think that's a fairly popular case yeah, yeah. that has been done already and so that's kind of the the the, the playbook if you want to spin up your own business from my perspective mm-hmm. i feel like it's a lot like the the pay is kind of to work So I I kind of enjoy more the competition aspect rather than even doing private audits. I feel like that's a lot more engaging, Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, if everybody starts competing and the payouts go to zero, I'm obviously going to be quick to change my mind. I would say that the biggest uh, thing that I'm seeing is that they saw a natural or, uh, uh, you know, you can fake it, but it it looks like a natural contrarian view where you can tell them that, uh, you know, the code does this and they will instinctively... Check whether it does or not, and they will assume that it doesn't. Like they will assume, as the sponsor, somebody that is paying as the customer, they will assume you're wrong because that way they can check, they can actually turn every stone. So that's something that really distinguishes the top researchers. And then I think the other thing is just their edge. Like at the mm-hmm. end of the day, the reason why these, these top researchers are there, it's not because they have a particular skill over us, but it's because they are set up in a way that allows them to succeed. I think mm-hmm. the best example that is, and I'm not gonna mention their name, I don't think they want to want me to, but basically there are great examples of people that spent months uh, working on something and uh, mm-hmm. they made it up. So I guess an example that is popular was uh, the Polygon uh, Bridge guy, the yeah. Batman, uh, you know, there's like four different Batmans. Uh, that was was porning.if, right? I'm gonna i'm oh. not even spoke to this person, so i'm just gonna assume but what i'm gonna assume is they studied the code base they stuck with it for a long time until the opportunity mm. came and instead you know of having you know 17 jobs uh, and you know changing their mind every three weeks or whatever they just stuck with it mm. and they were basically the only person waiting for that opportunity and so with the opportunity shown they caught it. I'm I'm sure that for every pointing.if there's some, you know, schmuck.if that is just waiting on the wrong bridge. You know, they're waiting on the BNB bridge or something and nothing happens. And so they're not going to get that opportunity. But I feel like in this space, the people like to dare is one of the greatest edges. And then the second edge is the tech, whether you built something that is your own, that allows you to either respond Mm -hmm. to accidents or track contracts or find vulnerabilities before everybody else. I feel like the biggest thing is really just in setting yourself up for success. And it's basically taking massive risk. That's the reality. You can afford it, obviously. And then the second part Mm -hmm. is in kind of pushing into that edge, which could be on a tech side, if you're more techie, or it could be on the social side. If you're more, like if you are in a discord and you have access to the contracts before they're launched, that's your edge, right? You don't even need to know any code. That's the edge. It's like, you're talking casually to the developer. They're showing you the code a week before it's launched. You already know what's going to happen and you have one week a- ahead of everybody else. So I feel like these type of uh, researchers are uh, uh, advantage because they ultimately mm-hmm. made it so that that could happen. Whereas if you treat uh, this space kind of as a job or a day job, these opportunities will will, will appear all the time, but you're not going to be able yeah. to seize them because you, know, you got to deliver something else uh, tomorrow or you're just busy doing something sure. else.
1: Yeah, there is one more topic I wanted to talk about and that was oracle manipulation. I wonder if anybody really thinks about this uh, this kind of attack vector and how they aim to even think about doing this or manipulating any oracles because it is a pretty broad kind
0: of thing. Yeah, it's something that touches close to home because like, if you look at kind of the primitives or I guess the supposed primitives of the previous gold market, we basically add the Uniswap invariant, the fixed product market maker, and then we've had Basically, landing protocol, right? You know, you can go on React right now, React and you go on the leaderboard. I'm gonna guess that 30% of all the protocol React were landing protocols. Just because of that, mm-hmm. I, I've been exposed to that often, right? Uh, a lot of my colleagues either have mm-hmm. been wrecked or they integrated with projects that were wrecked, and so the the last one that you mm-hmm. uh, told was the Euler exploit. That uh, hit fairly close yep, yep. to home, but but at the end of the day, what I wanted to say on the oracle is that oracles ultimately present the issue of how you figure out if something it, is true, and basically how yep. you write a contract yep. that defends itself. Like these are, in my opinion, the two ideas mm-hmm. that are extremely interesting intellectually and extremely difficult to solve. But at the end of the day, like if you look at the Uniswap invariant. The contract is not defending itself, quote unquote, because the loss goes to the LPR. That's what is happening, right? Yeah. You, you're getting rebalanced and you're taking the loss for being the LPR or you're getting the fees, but that's just a way to spin the fact that you're taking the, the risk and the loss. And so what if mm-hmm. instead we wanted to kind of defend that value? And so the simplest example would be performing a swap via harvest that is done automatically that anybody can call. That yeah. would be the simplest example I can give you and if you go in uh, on any you know cvx uh, yield optimizer or something like that you'll see that they all have the classic vulnerability which is uh, the mm-hmm. zero mean out they basically don't have a slip and check because they don't care it's a waste of time because too much to have on mm-hmm. oracle there's no oracle it's a mess it's going to revert all the time and so the there is no I guess no agreed upon solution there beside the idea that you could have a privileged act let's say the a multisig, sig uh, performing the swap with some sort of slippage or with a price data right you basically solve the issue of protecting value by delegating that observation to a off-chain actor which are the the multisig, mm-hmm. the trusted people so that the execution can go smoothly but basically you solved it by by not solving it you just passed kind of that that challenge somewhere else and so yeah. the, the interesting question that I have is if there is a way for you to solve it through smart contracts, and my hunch, the, it's a hunch because I haven't solved it, obviously, but my mm-hmm. hunch is that you could actually do that, and it will all boil down to the idea of information asymmetry, which means that yep. you can solve it, but it's not solved in every case for everybody. It's only solved for right. specific cases. And so the, the way, but the way you want to solve it is this, what if we made it so that every time you make a swap, it costs more mm-hmm. to exploit the price than to perform the swap. Wouldn't you agree that right. that's the simplest way to solve the problem?
1: Yeah. If you have no, if, if it costs more than the actual swap.
0: Right. It's, there's yeah. no point. <laughs> it's so just the that's exactly. That's, that's the interesting aspect is that when it comes to small enough liquidity amounts, amounts that you need to sell you can actually compute the cost that it will take to perform an attack and you can perform it on chain based on the reserves, reserves that you're already querying by doing the swap. And so if you think mm-hmm. about it, we can do the exercise longer, but if you think about it, the cost to determine if your price is being manipulated compared to a reasonable price is actually lower. So it costs less to know whether it's being manipulated than actually manipulating it. And that's because of the fact that an S load costs less uh, than a, a store. And so because of that, like we can basically look at all of the reserves of uh, a bunch of paths. We can compute the cost that it will take to perform the attack. And as long as the amount that we're trying to swap is small enough, we can actually solve the problem endlessly because we, we, can, we actually know how much it will cost and we can perform that operation. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of my intuition is that if you know this, then the only remaining piece is the fact that you can also use proofs, I guess, Merkle proofs to demonstrate that at a certain time, there were a certain amount of reserves. And so that would actually allow you to prove to a contract what the fair price should be, and then have the contract mm-hmm. determine statistically if the price is manipulated, and then determining if its price is being manipulated right now, and determining its own risk, and then determining whether the execution should continue or it should revert because of the fact that this Mm -hmm. whole thing will be cheaper than simply moving the balances, then it actually ends up making sense as a whole. And so that was kind of the ambition that I had when I started working on the Pricer. It's called On-Chain Pricer. Mm -hmm. It's like a repo on my GitHub. And we ended up using it to not rug pull uh, people when uh, processing bribes, which is like a a thing in yield farming. You have bribes uh, because you're paid to send incentives. It's like this weird thing, but basically we use it in that way, but I feel like if uh, somebody were to kind of take the ball and continue rolling, they basically will be able to write a pricer that enables to have a contract defend itself and know whether a harvest is actually a legitimate harvest or whether they're going to get wrecked. And so I Mm -hmm. think there's going to be kind of two directions because we saw some of these more recent articles about Oracle less lending. I know there's a bunch of projects that are launching now. But I feel like mm-hmm. the exact opposite of purely on-chain statistical analysis is also something that mm-hmm. uh, can be explored because from my experience, you know, it doesn't make sense as a logical puzzle because you're like, it's impossible to do it optimally. And for that reason, we're never going to try. Yeah. That's basically the mathematician answer. Whereas the engineer answer is actually for this specific subset of cases, you can actually do it. So we're just going to do it for that case. And for everything else, we're going to still say that it's impossible or it's unsafe. And eventually somebody smarter than me will take my work and will build something that actually works for other cases as well. And so that's what I think uh, is going to happen in terms of this this Oracle thing. And I think it's a really, really fascinating aspect of the the promise Mm -hmm. of DeFi, you know, actually autonomous uh, trustless contracts. I feel like it can be realized, but at the same time, I have to acknowledge the fact that it's insanely difficult and it's going to be definitely a team effort.
1: If it does get done, it would be basically revolutionary. It wouldn't like require basically like
0: off-chain data,
1: right? Like it it would just be all on-chain, which is completely aligned with like Ethereum's goal. You wouldn't have to rely on basically malicious teams or anybody going AWOL
0: (laughs) on an Oracle. I would say the last piece there, is that it's going to be interesting what happens when CowSwap decides to decentralize their uh, resolvers or their solvers. Because at this time, Mm. all of the promise of kind of, uh, you know, eating up MEV is basically based on the idea that their own actor is the good guy that is going to slash people. But I feel like the second, you know, you open Pandora's box, just like with Optimism, you know, actually putting fault proofs online. Once we open Pandora's box, that's when it's going to be a lot more uh, risky But it's going to be a lot more real in that it's going to either sink or swim by its own way. And I feel like uh, that's when people will stop just signing random orders on CowSwap, trusting that the solver will solve it for them, which is something I saw. Smart contracts just saying, you know, sign whatever because cowswap will solve it. And people will go back to actually having guarantees on chain because at the end of the day... You know, uh, anything you sign, that's the guarantee. And then the actual mm-hmm. execution is just a promise or it's not as real as the actual signature.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It would be definitely interesting because Castle is basically a centralized entity at the moment, right? You're basically trusting them to order your stuff. But yeah, once
0: once it goes public, then. I wouldn't be as harsh. I would say that you are trusting them to perform better than what you're signing. Because if you go on, on the website, they're going to have you sign a 50 basis points slippage by default. And so that's mm-hmm. what you're actually signing. It's not what is displayed on the screen. you got to check you know, what you're actually signing. But then mm-hmm. what they do is they have this centralized entity that will query every other solver, which are actually a bunch of other groups. It's actually an interesting side hustle if you're into MEV. You can just become a solver and solve orders for them. It's actually really, really cool. You get your gas back and they give you cow incentives. It's an awesome thing to do if you're into MEV. And then uh, Mm -hmm. what happens is they pick the best, the one that offers the best price to everybody. I think it's called a benefit. They just give the best benefit or the better execution price to everybody else. And then they execute. But the thing is, if you remove the centralized person that is querying and you put like some sort of slashing mechanism, then the day that Mm -hmm. you're handling more value than the slash amount, you're basically giving economic incentive for people to just steal funds, basically. And so that's the time in which what you're signing goes back to becoming what you execute, because if you sign a zero out order on CowSwap today, mm-hmm. they'll still find you the best price. But if everybody of the solvers agrees that their best price is one, then you're going to get one, even though the value of your asset was a lot higher. It kind of goes back to speed becoming kind of a, a trade-off of trust. Yeah. It's faster if you trust, but it's uh, slower to do it right. But I feel mm-hmm. like with this specific type of uh, scenario of small orders compared to the TVL on chain. As long as you're querying a high enough TVL, you actually find a scenario where it's anti-economical at all times to perform such an attack. And so you can actually write a contract that can defend itself for the specific case, given those specific circumstances.
1: Yeah, anybody becomes gray hat or I guess black hat if the incentives are there, which is on blockchain, economical, right? So if you can basically create a way to disincentivize it, then they won't do it unless... They really have nothing else to do <laughs> if they really want to destroy your thing then they will do it but it's more often than not just incentive what economic
0: wise yeah when you i mean when you say it that way it sounds uh like you can actually do charity i guess but that's that's basically what it becomes because like if the problem like the problem i guess with being good without backing or basically it's the problem of executing something without on-chain guarantees, or basically doing something above what is being signed, is the fact that there will always be somebody else that is going to exploit that. And so if you offer a surplus, yeah. basically there will always be the asshole arbitrageur that is going to just arbitrage <laughs> you. And so that's kind of why it goes back to that. I think there is a world where we, you know we all do the right thing, but the reality is that if you're doing the right thing and somebody else is not, you're going to be in a position of disadvantage. I think that's also, what happens with Code Arena where maybe back in the day, we would have been a little bit nicer about these QAs and stuff. And then people just started sending, you know, absolute trash bots. What are you going to do? You're just going to yeah. stop being nice and you just enforce kind of the rules. And so I guess that's that's what happens because we've never seen a scenario, you know, the, the real Nash equilibrium of people just kind of doing what is right. There will always be a guy that sees, you know, I can press the button steal money from you and I'm just going to get it and so why would the other guy you know give you those extra guarantees if, if you're not gonna hold kind of your side of the bargain if that makes sense mm.
1: yeah exactly we are coming to an end I've definitely learned a lot it's been great talking to you hopefully you feel the same way had a, a good conversation yeah it was
0: a good combo thank you
1: yeah of course and yeah man I'm excited to see the future especially with the oracles Hopefully uh, it comes into fruition. Someone starts building it and then you can say, yeah, I called that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or I'm going to, I'm going to find myself rambling on Twitter a little bit and eventually building it myself. What I found in, um, it's like you have only so many kind of projects you can build because every project costs, you know, it's like six months of your life at least, if not more. So there's only so much you can build in the time you have.
1: Yeah, for sure. I definitely feel that as well. This has been great, and hopefully people find value in this. And we talked touched on a lot of stuff as well. So I think it's uh, very diverse and insightful in each topic. So thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing your experiences with us.
0: Thank you for having me, and have an amazing rest of your day.
1: Take care.